Well, good morning once again. In light of the fact that just this last weekend we observed Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday and celebrated the atoning death and glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I thought it would be fitting for us to follow up that celebration with a time of reflection upon the gospel of Jesus Christ this Sunday morning. In the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, we find a very succinct summary of the gospel. Paul wrote the following, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. According to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, as revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, Christ came into the world to save sinners, and the gospel is the message of what he has done in order to reconcile sinful people to God. The gospel is the good news of God's gift of salvation to sinners that was secured by the vicarious death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son, and is granted to all who turn from their sinful ways and trust in Jesus alone as the one and only Savior of sinners and Lord over all, so that through faith in him, they might be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and granted everlasting life, the hope of a resurrection unto glory, and a place in his coming kingdom. Now, while the gospel message can be succinctly summarized, as we saw in the passage from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it can also be immensely expanded upon. There is no end to mining the riches of the glorious truths that it contains. And one of the Apostle Paul's other letters contains such an expanded presentation of the gospel message, a presentation and explanation of it, and that is his letter to the Christians in Rome. At the time that Paul wrote this letter, he had not yet been to Rome, but it was his desire and his intention to visit the Christians there in order to proclaim the gospel in their city, to strengthen them in the faith, to get to know them personally and be refreshed by their company, and to receive their material support for his journey from there to Spain, which was the next region he intended to visit for the purpose of advancing the gospel. In light of these intentions, Paul wanted to give the Roman Christians a thorough presentation and explanation of the gospel he preached, so that they would not only know it for themselves and be strengthened by it, but also so that they would desire to support him as he sought to take this message further west, all the way to Spain. And as a result, this personal letter contains the most comprehensive, systematic presentation of the gospel message and its implications in all of Scripture.
So go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Romans. And what we're going to do this morning is, is take a tour through this magnificent letter so that we might reflect upon and be strengthened in and rejoice in the gracious gift of salvation offered by God to all who repent and believe in his Son. One of the predominant themes of Paul's letter to the saints in Rome is righteousness. Righteousness. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul wrote the following, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the main point that Paul set forth in his letter, that true righteousness comes from God and can be received only as a gift through faith by those who believe the gospel. Guilty sinners can, by God's grace, receive righteous standing before God through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's letter consists of five major sections through which he presents the gospel and its implications. He explains the reality of man's sinful condition in chapters 1 through 3, the remedy that God provides through Jesus Christ in chapters 4 and 5, the results of believing in Jesus Christ in chapters 6 through 8, the reason for Israel's unbelief in chapters 9 through 11, and the response of obedience to God in chapters 12 through 15. And then in chapter 16, he gives his final greetings and concludes his letter. Now let's take our tour through these major sections of Paul's letter. In the first section, in chapters 1 through 3, or more specifically in, in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul explained the reality of man's sinful condition. A fitting title for this section would be Condemnation, Why You Need the Righteousness of God. In this section, Paul highlights the universal unrighteousness of mankind and thus man's condemnation before God. Paul begins by addressing in verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1. He addresses the unrighteousness of the pagan Gentiles. That is, those who are not Jews, those who belong to nations outside of God's chosen nation of Israel. God's indictment against them includes their failure to give honor to him as God and their abandonment of truth and their turning to worship created things rather than him, the creator, and their refusal to rightly acknowledge him. For all these things, God's indictment fell upon the Gentiles. And as a result, God lifts his restraint upon them as an act of judgment 
so that they continue to pursue their sin and reap its consequences. Man, in his rebellion against God, is given over to impurity, to degrading passions, and to a depraved mind. Paul goes on to explain in chapter 2 that God's condemnation is not only against those who are steeped in paganism and excessively indulging in immorality, God's condemnation is also against the so-called religious and moral people, whether Jews or Gentiles, who view themselves as good people because they practice some level of moral self-restraint. They judge others as worthy of condemnation by, uh, for their indulging in the excesses of sin. They can judge others, but by judging others, they condemn themselves because they also still sin. And oftentimes, they commit the same sins, just perhaps in a different way or, or to a lesser degree. And although they may try to downplay their own sins by comparing themselves to other sinners, they cannot downplay their sins before a holy God. So even the so-called religious and, and moral people are condemned in the eyes of God as being unrighteous. Paul writes in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, Paul makes it clear in chapter 2 that the so-called moral Gentiles, as well as the Jews, are unrighteous lawbreakers in the eyes of God. The Jews, who had the written law of God contained in the scriptures, did not perfectly obey, but transgressed it repeatedly. And the Gentiles, while they did not have the written law of God as the Jews did, they nonetheless revealed themselves as lawbreakers by violating their conscience, which God has given to all of us as an internal witness to basic right and wrong. And we so often choose to do what we know to be wrong, and by doing this, we condemn ourselves. Paul then drives home the point that all are under sin and thus guilty before God, in chapter 3. He stresses in verse 9 that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he shows in verses 10 through 18 that this is the consistent testimony of Scripture, that no one is righteous, not one. In verses 10 through 12 we read, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is man in his natural fallen state. 
This is you in your natural fallen state. We are all born in sin and moral corruption with hearts bent towards rebellion against God. That rebelliousness is manifested in many ways, but at its core, it is a rejection of God's authority over your life and a determination to be a law unto yourself and do whatever it is that you want in order to serve your own interests rather than submit to God's will for your life and to live for his glory. No one is inherently righteous. That's the testimony of God's word. No one is inherently righteous. However, some believe that they can somehow obtain righteousness through religious works, that they can somehow, by their own efforts, work their way to becoming righteous in God's sight, or at least make themselves deserving of heaven. The Jews believe that they could do this through obedience to the written law of God. Therefore, Paul concluded this section with the clarification of verse 20, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the written law of God is God's revelation of his righteous standard. And, like a mirror, it can only show you how unrighteous you are. It cannot clean you up. Therefore, the common ground for all men, whether Jew or Gentile, whether in possession of the scriptures and the law of God or not, the common ground for all men is that they stand condemned before God in their unrighteousness and are deserving only of his wrath. Now, the reality of man's sinful condition clearly demonstrates everyone's need for righteousness in order to be saved from God's judgment. In the next section of his letter, which technically begins in chapter 3, verse 21, and and runs through chapter 5, so all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, Paul explains the remedy that God provides through Jesus Christ. A fitting title for this section would be Justification, How You Get the Righteousness of God. Paul explains that the righteousness of God, that the law of God points to, that righteousness that Man can behold but not obtain. That righteousness is actually something that God freely chooses to give as a gracious gift through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Paul goes on to explain how it is possible for God to give righteousness as a gift to the unrighteous who believe and trust in Jesus. In verses 23 through 26, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, that is, declared righteous, by his grace as a gift, through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sinners who repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ receive righteousness as a gift from God because of what Jesus has done on their behalf. He offered up himself to God on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he bore the wrath of God that we deserve and died in our place so that God's righteous wrath would be satisfied and turned away from those of us who trust in Jesus alone for salvation. These are the grounds upon which guilty sinners can be justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul continues on in chapter 4 to show how God has always justified sinners through faith apart from works of the law. Such grace was demonstrated towards Abraham long ago, who lived long before the law of God was given. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul shows that justification through faith was also affirmed by David, who lived under the law centuries later. Paul says in verses 5 through 8, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It is on the basis of Christ's perfect, once-for-all-time atonement for the sins of his people that they are forgiven of their sins and justified by God through faith. Those who are truly God's people are called the righteous because they are righteous through faith. Now, after Paul's explanation of the remedy that God provided through Jesus Christ to sinful mankind, he went on to explain the result of justification for the believer in chapters 6 through 8. A fitting title for this section would be Sanctification, How the Righteousness of God Works on You. This is how you can know, by the way, whether or not your faith in Christ is genuine saving faith, and thus whether or not you have truly been justified by God through faith. God sanctifies those whom he justifies. There's a fundamental change in the mind and in the life of the sinner who has truly come to believe the gospel and has placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The clear evidence that you have 
come to truly trust in Jesus is that you are continuing to follow after him in obedient faith because he is Lord. Paul explains in chapter 6 that justified believers are free from the power of sin because their old self, which was a helpless slave to sin, that old self has been crucified with Christ. Because Christ died to sin once for all, believers, he says, are dead to sin as a result. And because Christ rose from the dead and lives to God, believers are then, as a result, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, they are able to walk in newness of life, and they will walk in newness of life. Paul writes in verses 20 through 23 of chapter 6, For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in chapter 7, Paul explains what justification through faith means for the Jewish believers and how it impacts their relationship to the law. In verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, I am speaking to those who know the law. He explains to them that in addition to dying to sin, they also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that they might bear fruit for God and serve in newness of the Spirit. Paul reiterated his point that through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and that such knowledge is intended to bring them to an acute awareness of and brokenness over the depths of their own sinfulness and thus drive them to the Savior. Those who are justified through faith in Christ are no longer under the condemnation of the law. Paul goes on to explain in chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit dwells within those who have been justified through faith in Christ. The Spirit affirms our adoption as children of God, empowers and leads us to walk in accord with God's will, and intercedes for us as we wait to be glorified and finally delivered from the very presence of sin. Paul concludes this section with the following words of assurance. In chapter 8, starting in verse 28, he writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he says in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, because justification results in profound eternal blessings and glorious privileges for believers, one might wonder, why has the nation of Israel as a whole refused to believe the gospel? Also, one might wonder, can the promised blessings of God for those who believe the gospel be revoked? Because it seems that Israel's rejection of their Messiah has led to God rejecting Israel and revoking his promised blessings for the nation. Blessings like the restoration of their kingdom and full possession of the land God promised to them. It seems that way. So in light of this, Paul explains the reason for Israel's unbelief in chapters 9 through 11, so that his readers understand God's righteous purposes for the nation he created and chose for himself. A fitting title for this section would be Election, what the future holds for Israel who reject the righteousness of God. Paul begins by clarifying that true Israel does not consist of all the physical descendants of Abraham, but only the children of promise. Those throughout the nation's history whom God mercifully has chosen to save and preserve by his grace. Such was still the case at the time Paul was writing. Thousands of Jews had come to faith in Christ in his day, but they only constituted a small remnant according to God's gracious choice. A small remnant of the nation as a whole believed the gospel. So the nation at large rejected the gospel. And Paul explains that Israel's current state of unbelief is due to the fact that they were so set in their ways of pursuing their own righteousness through works that they stumbled over the message of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. However, God's righteous purpose is upheld because 
by Israel's transgression, Paul says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And there will, he says, there will remain on Israel a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when that time comes, God will bring about the fulfillment of all his promises to Israel, including his promise that Christ will come again and remove their ungodliness so that all Israel will be saved. That will be the time of their restoration. And the Lord Jesus Christ will reign over them and the rest of the world in righteousness. So, we see that disobedient Israel will be shown mercy just as the Gentiles have been shown mercy. Just as we have been shown mercy. Here's how Paul sums up this teaching. In chapter 11, verses 25 through 32, he writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul thus makes his transition to the final major section of his letter, starting in chapter 12 and running all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. This final section, which consists of many practical exhortations to show believers how to live in response to God's mercy. A fitting title for this section would be Application how the righteousness of God works through you. The believer's righteous standing before God will be manifested through righteous living. Paul writes in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Generally speaking, Christians are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And remember, 
God is the one who defines what is good and what is evil. And we are to bring our thinking into conformity with his by personally accepting and submitting to the truth he has plainly revealed in the scriptures. Paul says that the lives of Christians are to be marked by genuine love toward others, fervent service unto the Lord, and a proactive pursuit of holiness. That's the righteousness of God working through you. For those of you who have been truly justified through faith in Jesus Christ. True righteousness that could never be attained by sinful man has been graciously made available through the saving work of the sinless one, Jesus Christ. For this reason, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. We have seen that we as unrighteous sinners can receive the gift of righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. We have seen how that gift of righteousness works in and through those of us who by God's grace have come to believe the gospel. Let me encourage each and every one of you to read through the book of Romans this week. Do it in one sitting if you're able to. Let the light of its truth shine upon you and, and lead you. And as the Apostle Paul said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And for those of you who either don't know or don't believe the gospel and therefore don't, don't know and are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, my prayer is, for you to repent and, and trust in Jesus. My prayer for you is that God would be gracious to you and open your eyes so that you would repent and, and believe the truth that he has revealed here in his word so that you too would receive forgiveness of sins and be justified through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. As it is written, one more passage from Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, as he writes in chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we rejoice in the gracious gift of righteousness that you offer to all who repent and believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. This free, undeserved gift that you hold out to all those who would believe. And, and Father, we thank you for your mercy toward us who have come to believe. And we thank you for the grace you have given us to believe. That you've overcome the hardness of our hearts. 
that you've given us spiritual life. You've opened our eyes to behold the glorious truth of the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would do that same work upon those who are listening now that have not been reconciled to you, who may honor you with their lips, but their heart is far from you, or who may not claim to honor you at all. Father, I pray for your mercy upon them. Do your work. May you give fruit to the word that we have heard this morning. May you cause it to bear fruit in our hearts. Amen. Well, that concludes our Sunday morning service, and we are once again happy that we are able to do this and, and that all of you are able to tune in. And Lord willing, we will see you right back here next Sunday.